In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. Amen. We all have a practical theology. It's uh, the theology that helps us to make sense of what happens in our lives. It's the theology that we act out every day in our lives. I would say that even atheists have a theology. It's a theology that says there is no God. So we all have a practical theology, a way of encountering the world and understanding our relationship with God that grows out of that encounter. I was meditating on these texts and trying to connect them with what had happened perhaps in my own life or in the lives of others. And I recalled an incident that occurred while I was working for the bishop in South Dakota. I was attached to the cathedral as a priest associate. So periodically I would get a call because we had two regional hospitals in Sioux Falls. And there would be a call that someone needed a priest. So I would go over to the hospital and I received one of those calls one night uh, for a family from the cathedral. And it was a family that I knew, a young daughter, probably seven or eight, and a, a physician who was working with the uh, youth group in the church and his wife. And I knew I knew especially the physician fairly well because of the work he was doing. But I also saw the life of his daughter in that parish and how important she was to what was happening in that parish as well. Well, I had no idea what I would find there, but I had always prided myself in being able to deal with uh, emergency situations, with crisis ministry. Now, that should have been a clue, and it continues to be a reminder to me to have it as a clue. Whenever you're prideful of something, that's just before the fall. <laughs> and it certainly was. I got to the hospital, and I came into the uh, pediatric unit. And some of the nurses were standing together and they were crying. And then I went into the room where this young girl was. And I saw the doctors working there feverishly and her father and mother standing beside her bed. He was a pediatrician. This was the unit that he worked in day after day. And here was his daughter dying. She had walked into the hospital about five in the afternoon with some sort of a respiratory infection. And in a matter of about three hours, she was crashing. People were on the phone trying to get a hold of a, of a private plane to get her to Minneapolis so she could get more help. And in that moment, as I stood in that room and I saw the panic on the faces of friends of this doctor and his child, I realized how helpless I was and I saw how helpless they felt. And in that moment, I was so angry at God, I can hardly describe it. And the way it came out in me was just tears. I was so mad. How could this happen? How could God allow this young girl to die? How could he allow this to be in the pain in these parents? Well, I finally worked through that enough to be able to pray and to be with them until they got that child on a plane. But I remember to this day with deep emotion how helpless I felt and how my practical theology had failed me. Now, you must know she came through that. She's had the lasting effects of some of the medication that she was given in order to save her life. But she's alive and she's thriving. But I've often thought 
why was it that what I thought I knew, what I thought I understood, how could it have failed me in that moment? And it was because my practical theology was inadequate. Bad things do happen to good people. Rabbi Kushner has a whole book about that. I think yesterday I heard uh, a Jesuit on NPR. Uh, there was a uh, conversation with him, and, and one of the questions he was asked was, how do you answer that question? What, where is God when bad things happen to good people? And he said, there is no answer. That's the truth. There is no answer. But what we do know is that God is with us in some way. God is with us through those times. But the truth is we live in a dangerous world and bad things do happen to good people. The lesson that we have from Luke today is an account of, of, of Jesus' journey as he goes down to Jerusalem, where eventually he'll be crucified, going through the villages. There's, there are large crowds that are follow, following him, and at one point he's stopping to speak to the people. Someone comes up to him and says, uh, reports this incident that apparently occurred in the uh, temple precincts, where some Galileans had gone to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. And apparently at the order of Pilate, they were murdered and their blood was mixed with the blood of the sacrifice. And Jesus asked them, do you think that they are greater sinners because that happened to them than you? No, I tell you, you must repent or the same shall happen to you. And then he offers another story. And this time it's about 18 who were killed when the tower at Siloam fell. And he asked the question again, were those people greater sinners than all the rest in Jerusalem because that happened to them? No, I tell you, unless you repent, the same shall happen to you. Now, the question may have been put to Jesus to draw him out, to trap him, because uh, there were those who truly wanted to have a different kind of a Messiah. They wanted Jesus to make a difference in a military way. They wanted him to galvanize the people, to overthrow these oppressors, these occupiers. But Jesus didn't fight. Instead, he turned the question on his head. And I think at the heart of what he was going after was really their practical theology. Because the practical theology of the day said that good people... People who are righteous, people who, have, who are right with God, good things happen to them and they prosper. But sinners, on the other hand, have bad things happen to them. Now, it's easy for us to say that was some kind of crazy theology that existed in the first century. But in fact, that was part, I think, of the practical theology I had not dealt with in my own life. And it's sort of part of that question about how can bad things happen to good people. Jesus is saying, none of us are free of sin. All of us have sinned. But it doesn't have anything to do with causing God to act in that way. At the time, the thought was that God would punish. If we were sinners, then that sin would be punished in this life. If you hear nothing else in this sermon today, hear this. God does not punish us in this life. We may punish ourselves as a result of some of the crazy things we do. 
which certainly do have consequences. But God does not punish us in this life. God instead is opening to us day after day, moment to moment, an invitation to repent, an invitation to turn, an invitation to reassess our lives and to find those places in our lives where we are separated from God and then to come to God and ask for forgiveness. The verb that's used for repent is uh, the tense of that verb means a continuous repenting, something that goes on. It's not a one time thing and it's over. It's uh, very different from an altar call, for example. And I'm not saying altar calls are not good, but the kind of repentance that Jesus was calling them to and the kind of repentance that I think we are called to in Lent is to reexamine ourselves daily, moment by moment. And to stand before God and ask God to show us what is separating us from God. And to repent of that, to turn from that, to offer it to God, and to receive God's forgiveness. I think there's also the possibility that those folks looked upon those people as perhaps not as good as they were. You know, it's really uh, kind of reassuring when something happens to somebody else. Well, at least it didn't happen to me. And then if you add to that, that it was because they were sinners and I'm really not. I mean, I'm not as bad as they are. Then it's a real problem. What we're invited to do in Lent is a very difficult thing. None of us, not one of us, really wants to look at our lives and examine them in the light of God and to see what it is that perhaps God might see. Barbara Brown Taylor uh, wrote something, and I won't quote it uh, accurately, but but the gist of what she said was, we need to be willing to walk into those dark places in our lives with our eyes wide open and look around, look into the corners and allow God to reveal what's there. That is what repentance and self-examination is, opening those dark places in our lives And inviting God to show us what's really there. One of the things that we don't often talk about in the Episcopal Church is confession. So I thought, well, it's Lent, why not talk about confession? (laughs) I had a friend at seminary who had gone through a difficult divorce and she had spent a lot of time with a psychiatrist over the years trying to work through some of the issues she was dealing with. And then one day she said she had been moved to go to a priest and arrange for a time of private confession. And she said it was such a freeing thing. It was so wonderful to be able to speak those things that needed to be spoken in a holy place. And then to hear the words spoken to her that she was forgiven, acknowledging that this was not good, but God had forgiven So she went back to her psychiatrist and she explained what she had experienced. And she said it was so freeing. It was so wonderful. And he said to her, you know, if you had done that a few years ago, you would have saved thousands of dollars. (laughs) So I commend to you personal confession. If you would take a prayer book, if there's one in front of you, that red book in the pew rack, turn to page 447. 
And there you will find the reconciliation of a penitent. And this is the terminology not just used in our church. I think it's also used now in the Roman Catholic Church as well. And at your, at your leisure, you might look through that. There are two forms of that service. It's very short. Essentially what it is is an opportunity to sit down with a priest, have a conversation, and talk about those things that have been perhaps kept secret for so long that they have a lot of power in your life. And by exposing them to another human being in the presence of God, that power dis- disappears. And then finally hearing the priest declare absolution and forgiveness of your sin. But I also want to draw your attention to the bottom of page 446. These are the rubrics that go with that service. And it says the content of a confession is not normally a matter of subsequent discussion. It is never brought up to the person who who was who requested the confession, made the confession. So whatever said there is left there unless the person wishes to discuss it again. And then it goes on. And this is perhaps most important. The secrecy of a confession is morally absolute for the confessor, the one hearing the confession and must under no circumstances be broken. There, there's probably not another sentence in the prayer book that is more obligatory on a priest than that one sentence. It is held in the strictest confidence. Now, not everyone wants to go to their local priest to uh, make their confession. So if you are so inclined, uh, I can give you the name of someone or you can just look in the, uh, you know, in, in the uh, telephone book and you'll find Episcopal churches all around where you'll find priests who are willing to hear a confession. I mention that to you in case there are some who might find that that is a, a different kind of Lenten discipline and, and one particularly appropriate for something that may be very difficult for you to deal with. I believe that in this lesson, we are being reminded that God is inviting us to a change of life. You know, the, that parable that comes at the end, the gardener is God and the landowner is someone else. And it is God, the gardener, who is appealing to the landowner for one more year, one more year. Give the tree another year to bear fruit. God is always, always giving us just a bit more time to bear fruit, to examine ourselves, to turn to God, to find that which is standing between God and us, and to pray for God to take it away, to make us free, to make us new again. Amen. Amen.